The two remaining stanzas of Psalm 48, the stanzas 3 and 4. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, what is a minister supposed to preach about on the second last Sunday before his departure? Next Sunday is the farewell service. There will be a special text for that. But what do I preach about today? After all, the move is already on my mind. It dominates the thinking. And so this past week, I thought about the church. And I thought of Psalm 48, which is about the church and the God of the church and the comfort of belonging to the church, knowing that God is our God. The last verse of this psalm sums up the beautiful reality that this psalm teaches. The psalmist speaks with a sense of amazement, a sense of marvel about who God is and what God's people may experience as part of his church. And it all comes to a climax in our text when the psalmist has surveyed Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the holy city, and has reflected on everything that he knows about God and what God does for his people, and then he exclaims, This is God, our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide to the end. I summarize the message this morning as follows. The comfort of belonging to Christ's church, our God will be our guide to death. The comfort of belonging to Christ's church, our God will be our guide until death. We don't know exactly the circumstances under which this psalm was written, but obviously something very traumatic had happened. And the psalmist expresses that in the verses 4 through 7 when he says, For behold, the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as of a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Jerusalem had been confronted by a grave danger. But the Lord God had led his people through that trial. And the psalmist was filled with a sense of thankfulness. A sense of amazement and he exclaims his amazement in this psalm he says in verse 3 within her citadels God has made himself known as a fortress God was among them God was with them and you ask yourself why why And the answer is 
because God has established a covenant with his people. God has established a relationship with his people. And God has become a father for his people. And his people may be his children in the covenant of grace. Psalm 48 speaks about Jerusalem. It speaks about the temple. It speaks about Mount Zion. It speaks about the holy city. And that's because in Jerusalem, in Mount Zion, God had taken up his dwelling. It was the place where the temple was. It was the place where the ark of God's covenant was. That ark which represented God's presence. And that's why the psalmist can exclaim in this psalm, God is in her citadels. God is within her because that's where the temple is. That's where the ark is. That's where everything is that speaks of that beautiful covenant relationship that God has with his people. God was there. And his people could count on him. It's interesting to note, brothers and sisters, that in verse 2, the psalmist speaks about Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. But you could also translate verse 2 slightly differently so that it would read, like the utmost heights of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. The interesting thing is that the word for north, which we have in our translation here, is also the name for a mountain that the Canaanites said was the residence of their Canaanite gods. And you can say that the psalmist is saying in verse 2, like those utmost heights of Zaphon, so revered by the Canaanites, is Mount Zion the city of the great king. Those Canaanites claimed that their gods dwelt there and that they received the protection of those gods. But the Israelites knew that that was just a fable. That was not reality. There was always that contrast. There was always that antithesis. There was always that divide. God and his people on the one hand and the gods of the nations and the peoples that revered them. What the Canaanites thought was true on Mount Zaphon was a myth. But it was a reality on Mount Zion. For God dwelt there. God really was there. God was in her citadels. God was with his people. And God's people had experienced that God really dwelt on Mount Zion. Because the psalmist continues in verse 8 when he says, As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts. They had heard of it. They had heard of what the Lord had done for his people in the past. How he had come to their rescue time and again. How his mighty arm, his outstretched arm, 
had come to the defense of his people. We read it this morning once again in the covenant law of God, how the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of our God rescued Israel from the slavery of Egypt. And that had been passed on from generation to generation, and there had been so many other incidences in the history of Israel in which God had come to the defense of his people. And therefore the psalmist says, As we have heard, so have we seen. They had experienced it themselves in their own lifetime when the Lord had come to the rescue of Jerusalem. When those mighty kings stood arrayed against Jerusalem, the Lord brought them to panic. They fled. And the psalmist says, As we have heard, so have we seen with our own eyes that the Lord God dwells in her citadels and that the Lord God comes to the rescue of his covenant people. You can also take it in a different way, and that is that they had all received the promise, the covenant promise of God. They had heard it. As we have heard, God renews his covenant promises to every successive generation. Every successive generation receives God's covenant promises and they are signified and sealed to every successive generation in the sacrament, speaking of God's covenant. As we have heard in that promise, says the psalmist, so have we seen. We have experienced it, that God is the God who keeps his promise. And then the psalmist has every reason to say of Mount Zion in verse 2, that it is the joy of all the earth. It is the joy of all the earth Because God has made provision for the joy of his people and for the joy of all of the earth by way of his promise of a savior. When this world fell into sin, brothers and sisters, God came with the promise of a savior. And that's what God was fulfilling, working out in his covenant faithfulness as he was leading all things in the history of his covenant people Israel to the coming of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in the flesh as our Savior. And everything that took place there on Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, at the temple, all those sacrifices and ceremonies of the law pointed to the coming Savior. It pointed to the gospel of reconciliation. It pointed to the gospel of peace and grace for all those who receive God's promise in true faith. And that's why the psalmist can say that Mount Zion is the joy of all the earth. Of all the earth. Because God had said to their forefather Abraham, with whom he had made his covenant, that Abraham would be a blessing to the nations. As we read in Genesis 12 verse 3, all people on earth will be blessed through you. And that's really the deepest meaning when the psalmist says that Jerusalem is the joy of all the earth. Indeed, brothers and sisters, from Mount Zion, 
would come the Christ, proclaiming the gospel of salvation. I think of the words that the angel spoke on the night of Christ's birth, as recorded in Luke chapter 2, 10 and 11, where that angel sang a song of praise, made an announcement. When he said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news for all the people. The people being Israel. But beyond that, in due time, after Pentecost, for all peoples. The joy of all the earth. You know, brothers and sisters, as we listen to this psalm today, and as we reflect on this, we realize that the church is the Jerusalem of God. The church is the Mount Zion of God. The church is the temple of God. The church is the dwelling place of God in the spirit. God is in our citadels. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2 that the church is that spiritual house. When Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. The temple of God. And then Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, that the believers are a royal priesthood. An allusion to the priesthood at the Old Testament temple. We are a royal priesthood called to serve God, called to present our lives as living sacrifices of thankfulness to God. And God has poured out his Holy Spirit on the church at Pentecost. God dwells in the church. What a wonderful reality that we may confess about the church. Because the church has the promise of God's protection and preservation. Just as God protected Jerusalem in the days of the psalmist, so God protects the church today. I think, for example, of what the Lord Jesus said to Peter after Peter had made the good confession and confessed who Christ is. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 16. Peter had confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then our Savior responded by saying, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. They will come up against it. The Lord Jesus warned his disciples about that during the whole time of his earthly ministry. They will come up against it. But the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Just as those kings in the days of the psalmist were scattered 
brought to nothing, so the Lord Jesus will defend and preserve his church. That's also why we pray in that petition of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. Our catechism explains that in Lord's Day 48 when it says, preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil, every power that raises itself against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. That's our way of praying along the lines of Psalm 48. No wonder then, brothers and sisters, that the psalmist says that he meditates on God's steadfast love. In verse 9, the psalmist speaks of God's steadfast love and he uses a very special term which is used in the Old Testament very often in connection with God's covenant dealings with his people. God is faithful to his people. God shows his mercy toward his people. God shows his unfailing and steadfast love toward his people. And the psalmist says in verse 9, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple, as we have reflected on what you have done for us. We have thought on your steadfast love, your unfailing love, your ever-present mercy. That characterizes God's dealings with his people. And it's a matter of God's steadfast love that he provides protection and preservation for his church. And then the psalmist says that wherever God's name goes, his praise goes. In verse 10, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. They had heard. They had experienced it. Those nations. That God is God. And that he is powerful. And that he protects his people. And the name of God had gone far and wide. And therewith also the praise of God. They had been in awe. And that's how it is also today. After Pentecost, the name of God goes to the ends of the earth. His renown, his reputation, the knowledge of his great deeds of salvation through Jesus Christ goes to the ends of the earth. And says the psalmist, as your name goes to the ends of the earth, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth because the Son of God is busy gathering for himself a people from all corners of this earth, from all tribes and tongues and nations, a people chosen to everlasting life. He is the God of righteousness. As the psalmist says in verse 10, your right hand is filled with righteousness. That means, on the one hand, God's righteousness because he punishes the ungodly. That's his righteousness. And it means, on the other hand, that he rewards the godly, those who walk with him in faith. That's his righteousness. 
That's God's reputation. That's what the gospel proclaims. And that's what goes to the ends of the earth. And now the psalmist says in this psalm, in the verses 12 and 13, Walk about Zion. Go around her. Number her towers. Consider well her ramparts. Go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation what you have seen. They had experienced so much. They had been under attack. They had been threatened. They had been in danger. But the psalmist says, now look. Look. Go out and number her towers. Count them. See that they are all still standing. Consider well her ramparts. Go and view her citadels and see that Jerusalem is intact. It has survived. It is still there. Consider well, says the psalmist, that the Lord has protected the security of Jerusalem. Today we would say, brothers and sisters, go and study church history. Because that's where you will see the towers and the ramparts and the citadels. When you study church history, then you will see that the Lord has protected and preserved for himself a people throughout the ages. The church has always been under attack. There have been doctrinal issues. As we sing in one of our hymns, by schisms rent asunder. But she still stands. Consider the political attacks. Consider the persecution. And we know that was not only something of the past. That's also something of today. There are always doctrinal issues. There are always political issues. Even today we know that in our free western world the church is more and more being marginalized, pushed into a corner, and we wonder how long these religious freedoms will continue. This week there will be a hearing in the Supreme Court of British Columbia where ARPA will be present, the Association for Reform Political Action, and ARPA will speak in defense of that Trinity Western Law School, which being opposed by the secular law societies. Really, it's not an issue about that particular law school. It's an issue about religious freedom. It's a political issue which affects all of us. The church is under attack. And in some parts of this world, brothers and sisters, people are gathered together today in secret for fear of their lives. They pay with their own blood. The church is under attack. Study church history. Look around in the world today. But, says the psalmist, the church is here. Count her towers. Look at her ramparts. Go through her citadels and see that the church 
is here. We confess it in Belgian Confession, Article 27. This holy church is preserved by God against the fury of the whole world, although for a while it may look very small and as extinct in the eyes of man. Thus, during the perilous reign of Ahab, the Lord kept for himself 7,000 persons who had not bowed their knees to Baal. Elijah thought, I'm the only one left. But God said, as it were, she's still standing. The towers and the ramparts and the citadels. I have 7,000 persons who have not bowed their knees to Baal. And the psalmist says in verse 13, look at all of that, that you may tell the next generation, that you may pass it on, that they too may say later, when they experience the Lord's preservation, as we have heard from the previous generation, so we have seen in our own generation. And then follows as the climax of this entire psalm, verse 14. Tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. When the next generation is told about what God has done in the past, it may be confident about the future. And that may be the reality for us today too. When you study church history, when you see God's protection and preservation of the church, you may be confident about the future. As God has done in the past, and as God is doing in the present, so God will do in the future. Because, as the psalmist says, this is God, our God, forever and ever. That's our comfort for the future. God is with his church always. I want you to notice this morning, brothers and sisters, how personally the psalmist speaks about God. He speaks about God throughout this psalm as our God. In verse 1 of this psalm, he says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. And he says in verse 8, As we have heard, so have we seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. And then verse 14, This is God, our God, forever and ever. What a wonderful confession the church may make. The God who does all this is our God. And we may be His. In the covenant of grace, he is our father. He is our king through Jesus Christ, our savior. And then follow the very last words of the psalm when the psalmist says, he will guide us forever. You could also translate, he will guide us until death. Right to the end. And that makes us think of what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, 
35 through 39, those beautiful words where Paul says that nothing will separate us from the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the New Testament way of saying what the psalmist says in our text. This is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. That applies to us individually, and that applies to us collectively, as God's people, his church. And each of us may say that very personally. This is God. And we may say it very collectively. This is our God. Forever and ever, he will be our guide, even to death. That's our only comfort in life and death. That's our comfort about the church. And that's our comfort because we belong to the church. This is our God forever and ever. He will do it. Amen.